Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. Hi, I'm Alan Montecilio, in for Erica Cruz Guevara, and you're listening to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. I thought it was like leaves or something, but it's like all those are all fish of all different sizes floating. This week is the first week that I actually see dead fish, you know, crawled up, twisted, laying on the ground. The odor, the smell, um, and I'm concerned about, you know, the heat wave coming. So by now, you've probably heard about or seen or even smelled the thousands of fish that were washed up on shores all over the Bay Area. It's likely the result of an algal bloom that's grown over the past month or so. Scientists say there are things we could have done ahead of time. And for us, it's also a reminder that the Bay, the literal Bay, is home to so much life that should never be taken for granted. San Francisco Bay is is a gem. It suffered a big blow, but it can be resilient if we do our part to take care of this miraculous ecosystem. Today, why so many dead fish have washed up all over the bay, and what we can do about it. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. San Francisco Baykeeper received the first reports of discolored water in late July of this year. This is John Rosenfield. He's a senior scientist with San Francisco Baykeeper. Yeah, San Francisco Baykeeper is an environmental watchdog for San Francisco Bay. Um, We patrol the waters and investigate reports of pollution, and then we hold polluters and public agencies accountable. San Francisco Bay is is known to have algal blooms, particularly during the summer, uh, that are small and usually uh, don't last that long. But this one has has lasted now over a month, uh, which is, you know, unprecedented. 
And then a week ago, uh, we started to get reports of dead fish washing up on the Foster City shoreline. A few sturgeon appeared there, sharks, striped bass, things that you don't usually see washed up, certainly not more than one washed up on a shoreline, right? These were large, durable fish that had already survived a long time. So for them to all die at once uh, was concerning. I think that's the moment that that I knew something worse was coming. And then this weekend, Lake Merritt had the most graphic documentation and dramatic images of the fish kill, but it certainly wasn't limited to Lake Merritt in any way. Central San Francisco Bay, but also the South Bay down by San Jose and the, uh, the North Bay as well uh, in, the, in the Vallejo area. Since then, we've just been continuing to get reports of dead and or dying fish washing up on the shoreline. Do we have any idea yet how many fish have died? It's an unimaginable number of fish, meaning literally. People are reporting dead fish on the shore. Fish don't live on the shore and they generally don't die on the shore. So whatever you're seeing on the shore or even floating in the water is literally skimming the surface of the actual event. Most of these fish that died are on the bottom. Lake Merritt was particularly dramatic because it's not very deep, right? So you can see everything. Thousands is not even close. It's really uncountable numbers of, of fish. Some of them are going to be transported out the Golden Gate on the tides. Most of them by far are going to degrade on the bottom of the bay or, or, or in just deeper water than we can see before we ever detect them. I want to just back up here and try and understand why this happened and start super basic. We know that all these fish, you know, have have died as a result of an algal bloom. What is an algal bloom again and how do they typically form? A bloom is when the reproduction of a particular organism kind of goes out of control. And so that's what's happening here is a particular organism, heterosigma akashiwo, grew out of control an algal bloom of any size can lead to low dissolved oxygen in the water. As the algae die, other things are consuming it in the water and uh, their populations then go off the charts and they're sucking the oxygen out of the water and then fish don't have enough oxygen. My understanding is that algae isn't always bad, right? But what has been so dangerous about this algal bloom in the bay? Yeah, algae are a normal part of the bay. Um, There are lots of organisms floating around in the bay uh, that are the foundation of the food web for the bay. When one of those organisms starts growing out of control, we call that a bloom. Once we get to a bloom state, then it can dramatically alter the the chemistry of the water to the point that there's no oxygen and or uh, lots of toxins floating around. It's the size and the duration of this bloom that have caused the real problem. Is it fair to say basically that the fish couldn't breathe, essentially? Yeah, we don't know the specific mechanism that produced this fish kill, but it's highly likely, and and certainly the pictures that we uh, saw, 
indicate these fish were struggling for oxygen, whether that's because there wasn't enough oxygen in the water or because the algae released a toxin that did some damage to the fish's gills. We don't know. And it could be both. Let's talk a little bit about why this happened, or at least what we know so far. What is your sense of the cause or or causes behind this? So algae in any body of water, they need sunlight and they need nutrients and they need a certain level of water temperature. So um, San Francisco Bay, we know, is over-enriched with nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus. The source of the nitrogen and phosphorus in the bay's water is primarily from wastewater treatment plants around the bay. 40 different publicly owned water treatment plants that are treating our wastewater. And after treatment, the effluent is disposed of in the bay. So when we say wastewater, are we basically talking about sewage water, like human waste? Yeah, treated treated sewage water. On average, that's, that's about a little bit over 60% of the nitrogen and phosphorus in the bay. Other inputs are stormwater runoff from urban areas and agricultural runoff, principally from the Central Valley. If you mix that over-enriched bay water with the right amount of sunlight and the right temperature, that sets the stage for harmful algal blooms like this to to occur. Um, And we have those necessary conditions every summer. My first instinct when I heard about this is to think about climate change, which I think is a natural thing. So what do we know about that? Did this happen because of climate change? Everyone's mind goes to climate change these days when there's some sort of natural disaster. And, you know, that's appropriate because the the changing climate is certainly affecting everything. We have no direct signal at this early stage of a particular climate change mechanism driving this bloom this year. But the important thing to understand is that the necessary conditions for a harmful algal bloom of this type are in the bay every year, and we've known that for decades. So we don't need to invoke a climate, you know, this is climate change happening uh, mechanism in order to explain what's happened. Again, climate change is going, could have played a role here, uh, will likely exacerbate this problem, make it more common in the future. But What we know now is there are nutrients in the bay that are always at a level that will support harmful algal blooms. The bay, in particular, the East Bay shoreline gets a lot of sunlight during the summer and water temperatures reach levels that will support a bloom even before climate change. And I'm not saying that climate change doesn't have a role, but for some people, it's convenient to point to climate change because it means that they didn't have responsibility. So what is the problem and what is this really about, you think? One of the problems that's not gotten enough attention is where our wastewater goes when we flush the toilet. I want to acknowledge again that there's a smaller component, but measurable component of urban stormwater runoff and a measurable component from agricultural runoff. But we have wastewater treatment facilities that are operating the way they're supposed to operate. They're removing solids from the water. They're treating the water and getting rid of the bacteria, but they're not designed to remove uh, these nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, 
before the water gets dumped into the bay. So it's sort of an out of sight, out of mind problem. And I think people see a blue bay as they drive over one of the bridges and they say, oh, what a pretty bay and it looks healthy. But this problem has been lurking for decades and those who research it and study it and manage it within the agencies have been aware of it. And you know this red tide algal bloom that we're experiencing is a, a signal from nature that we're taking too long. In an interview with KQED, Bill Johnson with the San Francisco Bay Regional Water Quality Control Board said it's actually too soon to say that human wastewater is to blame. Now, John Rosenfield says that the science is very clear that most of these nutrients in the Bay do come from human wastewater. And his takeaways are still the same. We need to do something to address that problem. Why has it taken so long? Why, why are these nutrients not removed from the wastewater if, you know, as you say, this has been well documented? Well, it's a, it's a challenging problem. To reduce that nutrient load is an expensive proposition. And so before we begin to make the investments, it's, it's prudent to know how much of an effect do we need to have. That takes research. That research needs to be funded adequately in order to have it proceed at, at the fastest pace it can. And, and then there needs to be the leadership. Could you paint a picture for me of just some of the things that you believe would really help? Like how would it, how would it actually work? There's technology to do wastewater recycling, potable reuse. So if we can take the water that we flush down the toilet or that goes down the drain and clean it up to the level um, that people can use it, then we've removed the nutrients and we kind of have them in hand. And we then have a choice of how to dispose of them. And hopefully that choice would be to dispose of them in a responsible manner, meaning like some sort of land-based treatment. And other options in addition to water recycling uh, would be nature-based solutions such as treatment wetlands, constructed wetlands, uh, wetland plants, and any plants like these same nutrients that the algae like, right? And they will they can soak it up and store it in their tissue, and then that's treating the water as well. And then a final way would be continuing to invest in the large-scale restoration of the natural wetlands that used to surround San Francisco Bay. Natural marsh plants are also filtering this water uh, that's in the bay. What this sounds like to me is infrastructure. Yeah, but it's physical infrastructure of the pipes and the filters and the systems that we use to treat the water. It's also natural infrastructure that unfortunately we've destroyed in the past, but are now turning towards restoring more. What do you think it'll take to implement some of these solutions and get ahead of this problem? And who needs to take the lead on it? Various agencies are, are responsible. Principally, the Regional Water Quality Control Board issues permits for wastewater treatment facilities and uh, stormwater runoff, et cetera. So they're sort of the lead agency at the state level. Federal level would be Federal Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, but also we have these sewage management districts, 40 treatment plants, um, and they have responsibility too. For instance, water recycling, um, San Francisco as an example, does not recycle very much of its water at all. Uh, but 
San Francisco Public Utilities Commission could make the decision that they need to invest heavily in water recycling. So there's a, many different actors that do play a role here and will have to play a role, uh, and they will need a lot of money to implement these solutions. How long do you think it'll take for this specific problem, or at least the problem being this particular bloom that has caused the death of so many fish, how long do you think it'll take for that problem to be dealt with? The good news is this bloom is very likely to dissipate on its own. The bad news is that I can't say that it won't get worse before it gets better or exactly how long it will take. The algae here uh, rely on sunlight and days are getting shorter. They rely on warm water um, and eventually the days will get cooler. The current heat wave, though, may exacerbate the problem. It's not really clear. Um, and the algae need nutrients. And because they've population has exploded so much and they've consumed so much of the nutrients, they actually can burn through their nutrient supply. So one of those things or a combination of all of them uh, will make this bloom dissipate. But it could be days or it could be another month. We just really don't know. And John, just pulling back a little bit, just thinking about just the region, thinking about all of this here in the Bay Area, the actual bay, the actual water of the bay is so, I think, central to the Bay Area. And I think it's something that we all, I'd like to think, I think it's something we all care about in some way, whether we're water experts or not. So what do you hope people take away from the events of this week? I hope people take away from the fish kill the tremendous diversity and abundance of beautiful organisms that this bay supports, even though we don't always see them. Many of the species that uh, are going to be affected by this are already endangered or their populations have declined a bunch. And that's because of the way that we treat this ecosystem. But it can be resilient if we do our part to take care of the Bay. San Francisco Bay is, is a gem and, you know, it's a source of joy for all of us who see it. And when you drive over the Bay and see that the water is blue and has returned to normal, like that's, that's great. And it doesn't mean that the problem has gone away or that we've solved anything. So when we dispose of wastewater, right, there is no away. It's going into the Bay. We need to think carefully how we do that. We really need to take this uh, trauma and turn it into a focus on cleaning up our mess and living within the limits that nature prescribes. John, thanks so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks again to John Rosenfield, Senior Scientist with San Francisco Baykeeper. And thanks to you for listening. If you found this episode interesting, helpful, share it with a friend. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next one when it drops. This conversation with John was cut down and edited by Maria Eskinka. Erica Cruz Guevara added the tape and the music. 
And those interviews you heard at the top were recorded by KQED's Leslie McClurg. The Bay is a production of KQED Public Media in San Francisco. Erica Cruz Guevara is our host, Maria Esquinka is our producer, and I am the editor and guest host for today. Gerald Furman is our podcast engagement producer. Kiana Mogadam is senior producer of podcasts. Jen Tian is our director of podcasts. And KQED's chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alan Monticilio, in for Erica Cruz Guevara. We're taking a break on Monday, so we'll be back with you on Wednesday. Take care, stay safe during this hot weekend, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.